You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. For the past 30 years, the most popular video games of all time have been what's called first-person shooter games, or have had some element of first-person shooter, meaning you start the game and you're in this world on the computer that you see from a first-person point of view, and other people could be other, your friends or anybody on the network or other people in the game are trying to shoot you and you're trying to shoot them. And then when you shoot them, you get their money and you can buy more powers or more weapons or you can find weapons. And there's just an entire world, this 3D world universe that you're walking around in. Like, kind of like Grand Theft Auto or, or Fortnite, you know, these very popular games. The very first one, the grandfather of all these first-person shooter games is called Doom. I remember playing Doom in 1994 my friends and I would play every single day. It was so amazing. It blew my mind. It was the first game with real 3D graphics that you're walking around in and it's networked. So you could shoot and kill your friends, which is something we all want to do occasionally. But Doom was the game. The creator of Doom, John Romero, is on the podcast today, talks about what makes a great game. What do you need to do if you want to get into the gaming business or industry or if you want to make a good game? He wrote a book called Doom Guy, Life in First Person, and we talk about it right now. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. John, I think I've been playing computer games made by you or worked on by you since I was a little kid. You worked on Ultima, right? First off, I'll say in the <laughs> intro, you're the Doom guy. That's your book is Doom Guy. And Doom yes. was, I played that nonstop in 1994 and 1990, all the incarnation, you know, Doom 1, Doom 2, whatever it was out there, I played. Uh, and funny enough, that's probably the last hardcore computer game I played hardcore, meaning like it, it, it's not like online chess or backgammon or anything like that. It's a computer <laughs> game, a, ro a role playing computer game. I never got into like Fortnite and, you know, I started having kids and I wasn't playing yep. all those games as much. Well, thanks but for playing back then. <laughs> Doom was the first like three, I, I think it was, correct me if I'm wrong, Doom was the first 3D multiplayer game. Yes. All the graphics, First, everything. Full 3D, high speed multiplayer deathmatch. Nobody, nobody had done that. 
And um, I have to ask the usual stuff, but how'd you get into making computer games? So I loved arcades in the 1970s. You know, first I played a ton of pinball, but then I started playing video games when they started appearing in the arcades, probably around 76, something like that. And what were your favorites? Jeez. Well, I really, Targ was a, a real early cool one, along with Space Invaders, obviously, was really, really great. Galaxian had color for the first time, and that was super amazing. But like Pac-Man is from 1980, changed everything for me. So that was a really important video game. I love all those games, and I played all of them. You made an interesting point in your book how Space Invaders was the first game where it kept track of the high player scores, and you thought that was a yeah. good marketing thing. And then I always felt like Galaxian and then later on Galaga were just ripoffs of Space Invaders, particularly Galaga on Galaxian. Like Galaxian disappeared, and there was Galaga all of a sudden. Yeah, totally. Well, the thing is, I think Galaga was a kind of a sequel to Galaxian. I see. Yeah, so it was. It might have been the same company, but it was definitely more advanced. You know, I have Defender in my base right now. That was my all-time favorite, Defender and that Stargate. Game was so good, so good. So, but these were all like arcade, like two-dimensional, uh, very flat. Which, by the way, I still enjoy playing those games just as much. But as technology got better, obviously, games became much more sophisticated. Like, what was then the evolution that led to Doom? Many years of playing games <laughs> and programming, just internalizing design patterns and keeping up with technology and programming. You know, it was a lot of just living in the 80s and understanding design and design's progress and hardware's progress during that time period until 1990 when PC 386s were starting to become popular. And we basically discovered a really amazing scrolling trick. Uh, on the PC that could make the screen scroll as smoothly as a Nintendo could, you know, in hardware. And no one had done that before on a PC. In the nine years that the PC had been out, no one had done it. And can I ask, what do you mean? So, like, when you're playing Doom, it's like these modern games. It was the first kind of modern game where you're walking around in this 3D space, you see someone, you could shoot them, and so on. It, it was very much like, the ancestor or the, the the grandfather of VR games even. Like it's the first one. So what what do you mean scrolling trick? Like what was what was the leap in technology that allowed for this 3D stuff to happen? <laughs> well the scrolling I'm talking about is for a 2D platform game like Super Mario Brothers. That's what really got id software started was with that. And 17 games later we started making Doom. <laughs> okay. So yeah we made 17 games but before Doom, there was Wolfenstein 3D, and that was our first actual shooter. First-person shooter was Wolfenstein 3D, and that was in 1992. So that was the one that like really kick-started the first-person shooter, and then Doom was a refinement and a redefinition of what a shooter should be, and that's the one that a lot of people copied. And why do you think, like, with Doom, there was just this unreal excitement for that game to be released and what was it the multi like was was doom the first multiplayer game where you know you could play on different computers and shoot each other or what was what was the trick with doom you think that said it that got it so exciting everybody was frantic to have it 
<laughs> well, no, Doom wasn't the first computer that uh, first game that could be played across computers. That actually had happened. Um, I'd say probably in the late seventies. Um, I didn't know that between you know using modems. Yeah, it's like using modems, Ataris, and uh, Apple II computers. They're turn-based games. They weren't high speed or anything because the computers were really slow back back then. But um, there weren't too many multiplayer games because uh, local area networks where you like have a cable that plugs into the back of your computer that was not even a thing until basically around the year when Doom came out, were people able to go and buy cards to put into the computer and start plugging in networks. So luckily, Doom arrived to take advantage of that. But it was the very first high-speed deathmatch shooter. But it was our fifth first-person shooter in 3D. This is kind of a technical question, but in order for two people to play peer-to-peer, so I'm on your computer, you're on your computer, the computers have to send information about what's happening graphically with these 3D graphics. That strikes me as the complicated part. Like, was there just... Like how many, how much data described a scene where I'm, where I am? Because that's what's going back and forth between the computers. So what's going back and forth between the computers back with with Doom was only the key presses that you made, because I the other person we- has the same game running. So why would it need to send any data? Like right. graphics, it doesn't because they have the same graphics. So all they're doing is sending the the keystrokes that say what the their character should be doing on your computer. I see. So you know, each person knows where the other person is looking and where they're moving, and then it, it orients itself according to you know yeah. it's first person. So whatever you're looking at, that's what you see, and you just keep track of you know if the person moves, if the person is shooting, and so on. Yep, because what they're doing, like say they press the fire button, it goes across the network to your computer, and your computer goes, oh, this is the fire button pressed for that character in the world, make them fire. And so you would see them shoot their gun because it's taking that packet of data going, oh, that character pressed the fire button, and it makes them press the fire button in your game so they look like they're shooting. So when Doom came out, how long before you realized, oh my God, this is going to change my life? <laughs> we actually didn't think about changing our life. We thought we thought um, this is going to be a really good game when it comes out. This will be the best game that we've ever played. And uh, you bought a Ferrari Testarossa. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we did. That we was did. a little bit life changing. It was. It was. But we were. We actually were making a lot of money from Wolfenstein before that. Wolfenstein did really well, but Doom did go like nuclear. <laughs> it was. It was really huge. But yeah, you know, it was a life-changing game, but we weren't really interested in money. We were interested in making the best games at the time. And so where what were the challenges? What were your biggest challenges when making Doom? Well, the challenges were really just explo- d- discovering the game as we were really as we were developing it. It's like we're making this 3D thing. What does it look like? Well, what can the engine do? And what are, what's the definition, the data definition that the engine is giving us? And then figure out how to make a level look good with that. But yeah, it was it was a lot of um, going, basically climbing over wall. <laughs> like we hit a technical wall or a creative wall, we have to climb it and get over it because there's a there's a problem. But you know, overall, we did hit several walls during development. Like, oh geez, it's actually drawing the screen kind of slow. 
So John Carmack has to create this thing called the binary space partition, which is a data structure that lets the whole screen, uh, like like what you decide to draw on the screen is what determines how fast your computer is going to draw it. And he figured out the perfect amount of data that needed to be drawn on the screen, every single frame, and nothing more than that. And that is what the BSP was was important to do. And then it was like, how do we make a level that looks like no other game? Developing an abstract level design style was critical to making a game that no one had ever seen before. So yeah, it was crazy. And even at the beginning, before we started working on the game, we made a list of all the things that we would put in the game. And then in the beginning of January, before we started writing code, we put out a press release telling everybody, this is going to be the best game in the world that we're going to make. (laughs) What factor does storytelling play? Like if I'm just playing a first-person shooter game and just monsters are coming out of the place and blah, blah, blah. It doesn't feel like, how did you add kind of an aspect of storytelling? So I feel like, oh, I, I'm interested in getting to the next level. I'm interested in like exploring this new universe that I'm in. Well, back then, if you remember, it was just, we just got past the 80s and there was no story in the 80s. You just, you just did whatever the game was. You just did it and figured it out, right? Ultima, where... By the way, I didn't know you until I read the book that you worked at Origin Software. Ultima was my all-time favorite game in the 80s. That had a lot of storytelling. Yeah, because that was an RPG, but we weren't making RPGs. We were making a whole new thing. And so that whole new thing was a game where there isn't a big story. In fact, I think in Wolfenstein, we actually put a lot of story in the menu system. But, uh, But yeah, we... We uh, we got rid of that when when we made Doom. We decided environmental storytelling is what was going to be interesting to players because they don't want to stop and read things. They want to explore and experience things. So as as you start Doom, you're in a you're at the beginning in the very first level. You're looking at things you've never seen on a computer before move smoothly in a way you've never seen before. So your brain is not worrying about story. Your brain is going, oh my God, look at what this is. What's out the window? There's a sky out there. What's that fireball coming over here? You know, you're like seeing this stuff for the first time. And uh, and we put a, I put a, a dead character in there, a dead, a dead space marine. So you see like somebody was here and got wiped out by something. And so you're, you're starting to see the the marks that were made in the world as you explore and so our environmental storytelling was the only story that we wanted to tell while the player was going through the game and they're making the story happen as they're playing it so we weren't concerned with uh text and and uh you know dialogue and all that kind of stuff it was just like just play it and experience it we'll give you breadcrumbs to show you what's going on and what happened here in this environment that you were you know that you were now in something happened before you got here and you're, you're kind of discovering it as you go through. I love that. I totally forgot that you had that uh, dead guy. And that, that does seem like an important component. It leaves this element of mystery. Plus there was like, you know, things to uncover on each level, like more equipment and guns. And like there were secrets on each level. Yeah. And, and then, you know, you described your experience when you first, when you first experienced multiplayer Doom. You know, you logged on and played... Um, I guess John Carmack, your your partner at the time, and you were blown away. And I think for me, I had that experience that the first time I sat down to play Doom, people were shooting at me, my my friends from across the room, on our computers. Yep, and that must have been really like I've never had this happen to me before in a game. <laughs> yeah, and it's um, and I I guess games 
have never stopped happy, having that since. <laughs> like, yeah, basically. <laughs> like the first player sh- shooter has essentially become the default format for all gaming ever since. And but now it's what's what's the difference now? Like the worlds are so much bigger and so much more complicated. I can't even like it took you, I guess about a year, right, to make all the levels and and graphics of Doom. How it must take a million years now to make a, a modern game. It does take a long time um, because the fidelity of the of what you see on the screen is unbelievably higher than it was in Doom. Like, a, you know, a texture, a layered texture in today's game is so many times the entire size of what Doom was. The whole game with all the levels and everything, one texture is bigger than that many times. So <laughs> the data definition of games today a model with all the polygons and the super detailed skin that's on them it's it's so much data there's lighting with colors and shadows um and it all has to happen at a high frame rate there's it's it's so complex nowadays and and you have to create this entire world like you can't there's not just like eight levels there's a million cities and and people and rooms and houses and everything (laughs) Like, like for, for someone just starting out in gaming or making games now, is it even possible to reinvent the wheel and create a new game? Well, what you're, what you're talking about are these really massive games that do take, you know, 1,500 people to make and, you know, $100 million plus uh, dollars to create. But that's not the only kind of game that's out there. You know, there's a lot of games made by just a few people you know, uh, or a small team of 12 or something. And those are indie games. And those are made by very small teams of creative risks. And they create new things that no one has seen before. And if they really catch on, there's a lot of copies of that type of idea until some, somehow it turns that, that some of that idea hits into some really massive game. Um, so, yeah. So, you know, say uh, Arma 3 had a really cool uh, mod that was a battle royale type mod that turned into eventually Fortnite, <laughs> right? And it's and it's because it came from a modder. It came from an indie who decided to do something cool and try something creative, and eventually found its way into a giant, you know, triple A game. And what what did he do that was creative? What was what made that interesting for that time? Well, one of the things about deathmatch when you're playing a game with a with other players is there's a format that gets to be kind of repetitive. A lot of people are playing a game where you get in, there's maybe 30 people or less, and they're all shooting at each other. Maybe they're on teams, you know, but they're all just trying to, to, to shoot each other. And a lot of times they're in really close proximity to each other because they spawn into a level that's not really massive. And for people who are just starting to play shooters, getting killed over and over again is not fun. It makes them not like playing shooters, right? And if you play Counter-Strike, that's that's probably the highest kill rate to spawn. You know, the, 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 the shortest time to death is in probably Counter-Strike where you spawn and you're dead. And you spawn and you're dead. Because these mm-hmm. people are such experts. So um, what what was uh, Brandon Green had, had invented this Battle Royale mode where you make a level that is so huge that putting 100 people in it is still hard to find them. And what that does is is it makes it kind of a more casual deathmatch experience where people have enough time to 
parachute down into the world where they kind of decide where they want to land and they go searching through houses and they're finding stuff. People are killing each other in the world, but they don't even know because they're so far away from them that they get some game time. They get to play, they get to experience the world, maybe take some shots at somebody. Eventually they'll get killed and they'll learn something from the experience, but then they'll respawn in another server and figure out how to do it even better. But at least they feel like they're in the game and having fun and doing stuff and getting better. And that's more of a casual approach to deathmatch versus throwing everybody into a room and you know everyone gets spawn killed constantly. Now, with with the advent of uh, ChatGPT and and these la- uh, language models, do you think other you know AI based characters in the games will start to get more sophisticated and more conversational? So you'll have a harder time, you'll have a more interesting time interacting with them and a harder time identifying who's human or, or not. Well, yeah, right now there's um, some there's even videos on YouTube that you can watch where somebody has is using Unity and they show you in real time how they hook up a a, a plugin and it's a, a speech to text plugin that then can get sent out to ChatGPT, which then will process that, come back with a response, and turn that text back into speech. So you can be talking to a sidekick and just say whatever you want to them, and they'll say something back based off of a chat GPT response. And that means that we're going to have talking characters in games where the dialogue is not programmed and burned into the game, and you've exhausted everything they can say. It's going to be real time, and it's going to be infinite. And so you can actually get into conversations with characters in games before long, and it's going to be a whole new world. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Doom spawned this entire generation, like 
almost 30 years of these first player shooting games. They got more and more sophisticated graphically as computers got faster. And now we're going to see this next level. Do you think, you know, what, are, are you working on any games like that right now? Like I know you and your wife have Romero games. Like, are you making your plans? We're working on a first person shooter and we're using Unreal 5. And we have a, a major publisher that we're working with. And that's all I can actually say about my game because it's a secret. <laughs> right. Are you going to use uh, AI? I can't. I can't say what we're going to use. <laughs> okay. Well, back to the Doom days. Like here, you, 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 and a bunch of guys. You made Doom. It's a huge hit. It's very exciting, and it's doing something you love. This must have been a, a dream come true because it's very rare to a do what you love for a living, but b have it also be your company. So you're actually making a lot of money from it. What was life like then? Um, it was super, super great. I mean, I, I've traditionally um, have basically run my own company. Nid Software was my fourth company at that time. So it was, it, was, it was what I like to do, which is come up with a design and make that design. And, uh, and it was even better because I could work with a really great team of people and that's even that's so much better than working on your own. Like when you work with a team of people who are just excellent, and you all work really well together, and that's why our games are so good is because our team worked perfectly well together. You know, design wise, tech wise, art wise, just perfect. And uh, you know, we could push each other and get better and better and go farther. Um, and uh, and we just kept on trying to push ourselves to make a better game and then a better game. And so the idea was like, all right, we're gonna make you know, we're going to make Wolfenstein and, and, and it's going to come out and then we'll make the next game. And it'll just wipe out Wolfenstein. You know, like, we're just like, we're going to make the next game. It'll just beat everything we made before next, you know? So we're always in that mindset, like trying to make the very best thing based off of what we had done before, do it even better. And then, you know, at the time gaming was bigger than this new burgeoning technology, the, the web. And and yet web companies were being valued at ridiculous valuations. Even back in like 1996 or 1997, it was always ridiculous from, from the beginning. And I feel like gaming companies weren't valued as ridiculously, even though you had more users, in some ways, better technology. It was, it was, it was a, it still is a fast growing space. Like, were you seeing like, like, you know, were you thinking of going public? Like in software never went public. Were you thinking of going public or doing innovative business stuff? Nope, not at all. I mean, our focus was on everything being very small and focused. And we never would have gone public. That would have been like the antithesis of what our company was about. Um, <clears throat> like we didn't want to have to do anything for anybody else. We wanted to do what we wanted. And if somebody owns you, you do what they want. And that's not why we started a company. You know, we started a company to come up with ideas and make those ideas happen. So um, that was that was the whole point. Selling our company would have been the okay. We're kind of done, you know. And we were offered a, a buyout in 1996. A uh, company wanted to buy us for 100 million bucks, and uh, we turned it down. Wow. So so you had 25 percent of the company. You would have made 25 million, and. Not a lot of people turn away that kind of money. Uh, were you were you confident that you were going to make that anyway, even if you kept going, or what was what was your what was the back and forth at the time? Well, we basically were in such a, um, a 
a certain space where we were all focused on trying to finish our current game and we'd had such a rough time developing the game from the very beginning and now we're like in the last seven months of of creating and releasing it that we didn't want anything to take away from our focus on the game so we just we just told them we can't even think about this offer right now we're too focused on finishing this game so we can't even talk about it so we just kept on developing <laughs> and this was this was Quake. The game you were working on was Quake. Yeah, yeah. And, and which was sort, which was like a, a ten times more sophisticated Doom. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And basically, the, the the rise of games was sort of had a Moore's law. Like essentially, every eighteen months, games looked so much more sophisticated than the games made eighteen months earlier. And, and like Quake was to Doom, how kind of Gordon Moore was describing the evolution of of computers, basically. Um, and then it was at that point that there was, I guess you guys were all working so hard. So together and you were in your twenties, things are bound to, there are bound, bound to be problems. What was going on that eventually led to you, uh, uh, leaving it? Well, we made a decision, um, in November of 1995 when the tech, when the, the quake engine was finally done, um, we made a decision to just not do any more R and D on the game. Uh, which was required for us to create a 3D experience that was that would support the design idea, you know, the the game design idea that we'd had for a year at that time. And because it was such an arduous development um, process to get that engine made, when we made the decision to how to go forward with the design of the game, it was basically we need to just kind of make a thing that we already know how to make and not try to invent a new type of design and for me like that's what the exciting part was someone else already had fun making the tech part for me the exciting design part was yet to come and it was like no we can't do that because we're just kind of we've we've had such a hard time so for me it was just like well i'm not here to just keep pumping out the same kind of thing so i'm going to leave after you know after the game is over and now you had seen like a, a year or so earlier your your company being valued at 100 million your stake being valued at 25 million were you happy with the settlement terms that you and your partners reached when you left the company? Well, those settlement terms were already written in, you know, an agreement from years earlier. So they were, we just basically abided by the agreement that we had, which was a buy sell agreement. So if somebody leaves, the company has to buy their shares and the valuation of the shares is based off the previous year's profits, basically, or the income of the company. So that's how, that's how that worked. It's funny though because I bet the company trying to buy your company was multiplying the last year's profits and coming up with a valuation. So was there ever regret that you didn't kind of once you left was there regret that you maybe you should have taken that offer? Nope, no, not at all. I I the, again like when we were making games it wasn't about the money, it was about what we were making and that's that what we were doing was fun and exciting and interesting. So that's I have, I've never gone back to that going like, oh, I should have gotten more money. Not at all. You know, I was, I was happy to be there. I was lucky to be part of the company and to work with those people. And, uh, and I don't ever go back. You've evolved into like, you've had several game companies. Like since, since Doom, what are your favorite, uh, what are the, the favorite projects that you've worked on? Well, since Doom, uh, I really loved working on Hexen. You know, Heretic and Hexen were really fun, uh, you know, shooters that had a medieval design to them. Um, 
those are really cool. I, I, I actually worked on an MMO for about four years that it was never, it was, it wasn't released. It was very quiet, but it was, it was really interesting to work on. It was really, it looked really, really great. Really liked learning about mobile development, mobile games, building mobile games. Let me, let me ask you about mobile games. So when mobile started, it felt like computers were back in the eighties all of a sudden and it, and it reminded me of arcade like angry birds is essentially an arcade game style game and that sold or that that distributed around 100 million copies so what was it about angry birds you think that got people so excited even though it's like 10 steps behind in terms of you know computer gaming well that's it's easy it's um like why is candy crush so massive you know uh, it, it's because there are so many people playing games that are not hardcore game. Well, actually saying that they're not hardcore is wrong because if somebody plays Candy Crush all day long for day upon day, they're a hardcore player, right? So players, people who play casual games, which are not games made, uh, you know, in the traditional style of a shooter or an RPG or things that require intense amounts of, you know, information in your head and sophisticated problem solving and all this stuff. People that just want to have fun playing something that's funny or simple or whatever, you know, Angry Birds is like a masterclass in how to take a design that's been around since the seventies and turn it or turn it into an amazing mobile game with, with innovative input and great characters, great sound and really, you know, perfectly programmed animation and motion and and uh in design and turn it into something that everybody wants to play it was great when it came out it was huge and uh you know it's based off of a design called um artillery from the 70s what was artillery used in any arcade games i don't i don't really know like what does angry birds remind you of from the 70s or 80s well it's definitely like go just a little bit before oh well maybe a little bit maybe 10 years earlier if you remember worms the game Worms, Worms Armageddon. So it's a bunch of worms that are shooting each other over a landscape. You know, and back in the 70s, it's artillery where you have to say what what degree your cannon is aimed at. And it tells you what the wind speed is. And you say what your velocity is of, of shooting it. And it shoots this, this ball across to hit another character if you can create the correct values, you know. So yeah, there's there were, there were several uses of the design artillery but not until anger birds it was like the perfect packaging of that idea and that's why it did so well do you think they were just lucky to kind of package it right or like what do you think was their insight that led them to you know use this artillery model to make angry birds well they they took a, a, a design that's been around for decades so that means that lots of people still like that idea but they made it mm. so easy to to play you don't have to type in the velocity and you have to type in an angle you were just using your finger like playing a golf game you know to to pull back and just like let go and it's funny and it sounds it sounds great and it's got this funny you know pigs versus birds kind of idea um and they really did a great job marketing it and just making sure that there was some some kind of character behind it so it was it was, it was you know a really smart company putting a lot into the design and the presentation, the marketing of a game that was very, very simple, but had got people hooked because it's so easy to play and so much fun. Going all the way to the other end of the spectrum, what do you think of VR or augmented reality games? Like, where, What's the future of those right now? 
well, geez, there's so much happening in that space, you know, say AR, where you can combine the world around you with, you know, with graphics on top of that. Uh, it's basically changing uh, the way that games can be played. And for me, looking at VR and looking at AR, because the designs of these games are so different than all other games, I really treat AR and VR as separate platforms. If you look at a PlayStation 5, what can it do? What kind of game would you play on a PC or a Switch? You know, what kind of game would you play in VR? Well, it's a totally different kind of game than anything else because it takes advantage of that platform to do something you could not do on all the other platforms. So I always look at it as a different platform. If I decide I'm going to make a VR game, it means I'm making a game for the VR platform and it probably is not going to translate well to other platforms but there's a lot of you know there's a lot of innovation going into that like especially with apple's vision pro uh glasses that kind of can go between vr and ar with a just a dial it really does open up uh different possibilities for games you know it's uh people have played around with those ideas before but i think it's going to get more intense it seems like it'd be fun to make an ar first like imagine an ar doom where you're walking around the real world, but if somebody is in the game, you notice them and you could start shooting at them. <laughs> I can just imagine how everybody on the city street will be horrified that somebody has a fake gun, but the that fake gun is used to shoot people in AR. I can just imagine the, the news stories around that. People don't like seeing other people moving around in, in the real world with anything fake like that. But someone will do it. Yeah, and and like if you were, but if you were to make an AR game, what do you think? What what sort of design is like? How would you combine the the fictional world of the game with the with the real world? You know, in in, in the sense that it's augmented reality. Like you personally, if you were to make an AR game, Jeez. well, I wouldn't use um, anything. But you know, I would I would try to come up with an idea that really took advantage of AR. I don't know if you saw. Apple's AR kit demo years ago no. where they had a table on stage and they were showing what the iPad was looking at. And they had an iPad looking at the same empty table, except on the iPad, they showed a whole Lego world that was built there. And so you could move around in there. You could put your, you, you could basically touch characters inside of the Lego world. And, uh, and it's like a whole scene that's just playing out all kinds of animation and things are happening and, you can just make some, you know, make a, a, a fire engine go over and try and put out a fire. And it's like, it, there's nothing in the real world, but on the iPad, you're actually affecting this fake, you know, vi virtual world that looks like it's there. And, and the thing is, if other people have the same, uh, an, another iPad, they're seeing the same thing. So you're multiplayer gaming like that. So as an example, who wouldn't want to play Dungeons and Dragons around a table where everybody has a big iPad and they're looking at a dungeon and all their characters and they're moving them around in AR, right? Like they're playing D&D &D and the DM is over here with their iPad and they're basically, they've already set up the whole maze ahead of time and they're actually spawning monsters and doing all kinds of stuff and just like keeping the rules going for the players who are just like in real time trying to make, make their way through a dungeon. That would be pretty cool. It seems like you could do that in, in VR, though, even more immersively. Like you don't, you know, then you immerse yourself into the dungeon and into the world. Yeah, if you want to play Demeo, D E M E O, that game already exists. It's a it's a four player Dungeons and Dragons 
game where everybody is in VR and you're, you could be playing with people around the world. You have no idea, but you're all sitting there taking turns moving your characters in the dungeon. I'm wondering if like augmented an AR game will even be one step further in the sense that you're in, you're in this world, but some of the people you encounter or some of the locations you encounter are not in this world. Yeah, totally. The relationship between this world and the fictional world would would become part of the the game itself. It would be an important aspect of the game. Yeah, you could meet people who are in other countries in AR, you know? So I think that there's a lot, there's there's a lot of thinking around what to do there already. Like, what do you think is the the role of of community and player engagement? Like, how has that evolved and and what, what is the future of that in games? It's going to be more, people will be more connected, I think, you know, instead of social media being something that's kind of separate from the game, maybe people will start to integrate that into the game. So I think that there's going to be, there's, there's more work on, you know, getting communities more engaged inside of games and not having to go externally outside of games to engage uh, with each other because the games are trying to connect players together. So, you know, I think that that's, uh, people are trying to figure out how to do that. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Do you think Facebook, with their metaverse ideas, went in a wrong direction? It seemed like they were sort of trying to start from the ground up, despite all the technology that was already out there, and it didn't really work out for them so far. Everybody's, you know, everybody's had an idea of what the metaverse is, and, and a lot of it comes down to Snow Crash and and what that what what that that specific metaverse looked like. But I feel that everybody's, you know, everybody's metaverse is probably going to be different. Because if you love, if you really love a game, let's say you love World of Warcraft, and like, why can't I play WoW in VR? To me, that's my metaverse. I'd rather live in there than some dystopian, you know, futuristic world that the actual, the original um, metaverse was designed after. You'd rather work, you know, live in a totally different world, or like the Witcher Three's world. And I, I have a feeling that like the metaverse is really going to be based off of. Uh, specific designs and that people will choose the metaverse that they really, really like. And those communities will just get bigger and bigger inside those games. I wonder if Microsoft has been quietly kind of, or not even not so quietly building up their idea of how a metaverse will look by, because they're buying all these game companies like Activision and so on. I wonder if that's their way to sort of 
essentially skip the line and get right into a metaverse by having all these, you know, 3D in VR games all ready to go? Well, um, there's definitely a lot of acquisitions happening, which is typical for the industry where you you just, you know, buy buy up companies and at some point those companies will start splitting up. You know, it's like consolidation and then fragmentation. And it just happens, it's a cycle that happens all the time. And a lot of times those big companies, like when Activision and Blizzard kind of merged, they were still pretty autonomous. And and usually when things get bigger, they, they kind of there's so much management that they kind of like, well, the reason why we bought you is because you do really great making your decisions. So you keep on doing that. Um, because if you acquire somebody and you change everything that they do, you've, you've kind of ruined the reason why you got them, you know? So a lot of times they still just want to be part of the same group, but keep on doing the cool thing that you're doing. Yeah. I mean, it's like what you were saying before, how, you know, you didn't go public because you didn't want to essentially work for anybody. And you wanted to create your games rather than being told what games to create. It, it, it's sort of like when, um, I guess, James Cameron's studio approached you about doing a game for Aliens when you were still working on Doom and Quake and so on. And, and you guys decided not to do that because you didn't... Because yeah, we want to make our own game. We don't, why make that person's intellectual property more famous or more valuable instead of doing our own? It's so interesting. Like I, I learn a lot from what you're saying because I think... If I were making the decision and James Cameron approached me about aliens and said, can you make a game? I just would have said yes reflexively because I would have just I would have just changed Doom to have the alien monsters in there instead of the yeah. creatures you had in there. And it would have been easy. And he would have probably been fine with that. And you would have made a lot of money. But but you weren't thinking that way. And I'm I'm really interested in in why. Well, we would have been paying him a lot of money, but the other the other thing is, at that time, I've had already been involved with making something from someone else's property. So, in my um, the company, two companies before it, on my second game dev company, uh, we made an alien game. So we had a uh, we had a um, a relationship with 20th Century Fox and and a company called um, in, uh, Infocom. And it was just like, wow, all the loops that we have to run through to get a decision made. Like when we're just trying to put something in this game, it's like, can we put this in the game? And it's like, that's not canon. You know, and it's like, and you can't invent new canon. You are only licensed these characters and this name. And like, it's just, why, why go through all that when you actually have a team that can invent brand new stuff? Why do you want to go back and just make someone else's intellectual property more valuable by inventing new things for it, you know? And some people would, would like to do that. I mean, people like the, the Star Wars universe has expanded greatly in recent years because of all the amazing creatives that have come in and expanded the storylines and the different ways it could go. I love that. I'm so glad that people have done that. So I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but if you own a company yourself, <laughs> you know, if you could make a lot of money doing that, sure. Um, but if you if you have the ability to create something brand new like that from scratch, I would, as a as a creative person, I would be more inclined to create my own brand new thing than to, um, you know, it, enhance somebody else's already created world. Ultimately, right now, and you're obviously you're still involved in game development. You're you have secretive game you're working on right now. What <laughs> would you say are the like when you're first mapping out the game? What would you say are the key elements? of 
making a game successful? Is there is there an element of chance or are there things specifically you know, okay, design has to be like this, storytelling has to be like this, and, and so on? Yes, to all that. <laughs> there is definitely an element of chance and you need to know how to make a game. So uh, you have to know how to make it as best as you can. You need to know what people will hopefully like in X years down the few, down the road when it actually launches. So you have to have a lot of experience with what's happening and where things might go and come up with a design that kind of wraps all that stuff up together. And, you know, things change constantly in game development. The idea that you have at the very beginning is usually not the thing that you ship. It's always the better thing. You know, it's better than what you thought of because you're reacting to uh, technology, to changes in design in the world or different ways that people play and you keep on changing your game to be the best thing that it can. So when it comes out, it was like, wow, we never would have been able to do this if this big thing didn't happen in the world or this idea had not launched or something. So, yeah, it's it's all about being reactive. Okay, so there's reactivity, but there's also, there's got to be, I imagine... You know something that keeps the interest of the gamers more than other games do. Like, how can you, when you're analyzing games or when you're looking at game ideas or you see new games on the marketplace, do you have a sense like, oh, this is missing that mysterious component that makes people excited? Like, I'm just curious, what what is that mysterious component that that would make a gamer excited on some games versus other games? Well, I think you know when it comes down to design. It comes down to the core loop of the game. Are the systems that you're putting into the game feeding directly into the core loop? And is every decision you make enhancing the core loop? So what the player's doing, as an example of a core loop, let's say you're ta- we're talking about World of Warcraft. The core loop of World of Warcraft is move towards an enemy, engage with the enemy, fight the enemy, hopefully kill the enemy, get loot, get money, go buy better stuff, kill bigger enemies, get better loot, bigger loot, bigger money, go big, buy something even better, and you just keep progressing through the game, getting bigger, 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 higher levels and higher levels. And so everything that you do, like, can I go talk to somebody to buy armor? Yes. That's that's part of the core loot because that armor is what I need to survive the next wave of enemies that are tougher. Can I buy a better weapon? Yes, that's core to the loop, right? If you buy cheese, what is that for? Oh, well, maybe it's food and you need health. Okay, so the cheese actually gives you health. If the cheese didn't give you any health, what does it do? And if it feeds into being a, a, an ingredient to making a potion that gives you superpower, then yes, it's correct, right? It's valid. But if it's trash, what reason is it? does it exist in the game? Does it keep the core, does it make the core uh, stronger? And if it doesn't, you should get rid of it, Right. So you always have to make sure everything that you're putting in a game is is feeding into what that core loop is all about, what that game is supposed to be doing. So so now there's a bunch of games out there with exactly that core loop. How do you then go about enhancing it to make a new game? Like, what do you think about when you want to enhance the game experience using that same core loop? It's a lot of a lot of times it comes down to um, like how is the player progressing through the game? Is the progression interesting enough? Are you giving the player enough choices to make that makes the game interesting. Like, you know, like when, uh, when you loot, let's say when loot drops, how are you dropping loot for the player? Maybe you've decided that in this next game, we're going to, we're going to come up with a different way of doing it. Cause in our last game, when a piece of loot dropped, it was just like, that's what it is. There's your, there's your, um, 
bracelet or whatever, you know, a trinket that will give you some kind of power. In this game, we're going to make it so when it drops, you get to choose which thing you want. And it's like, do you want these bracers or this glove? And you're like, oh, geez, it's a hard decision, but it makes you think, you know, it's like that is going to make this game a little bit more interesting by giving players a tough choice. And so that could be just one of the many ways that you could enhance a game from something that was more simple to something that has a little bit more interesting choice. And what's another example of a core loop? Um, well, look at um, Angry Birds, right? As an example that you had mentioned, the core loop of Angry Birds is shoot bird into pigs, <laughs> not or shoot, shoot bird into something that will get rid of all the pigs. You have to get rid of all those pigs to finish a level. So um, you only have so many birds that you can send out, and you only have so many pigs you have to take out. And if you can't do it, then right, you've lost. But if you can, you go to the next level. And like that's the core loop. So it's like, can I get birds that are bigger, that can go faster or farther or take more damage? Um, so yeah, there's there's a bunch of things that you can do to just kind of add to what that core loop is about. Do you have? Uh, do the pigs have a, a type of architecture that will bounce the the bird off of it and repel them, doing no damage to it? Like that's a pretty that would be a pretty strong piece of of enemy. Um, uh, you know, uh, defense. And so, like, okay, so how do we defend the enemy even better? Like explosive barrels, so your bird blows up and when it hits a barrel and the pigs surround themselves with barrels. And so you can come up with all kinds of ideas that are different and more advanced than the previous game and decide whether they make sense, you know, to the game's aesthetic or the game's feel. You know, like if blowing up the birds is actually not a good idea for the intellectual property of the game, then you would never put the explosive barrels in it. But if the game is all about blowing them up, then it's a totally different world, right? So, um, yeah, there's a lot of decisions you have to make. Yeah, I never, I never really thought about... It's sort of like what Kurt Vonnegut says about fiction. Every word has to move your main character forward in some way. Otherwise, you take the word out or sentence out. Exactly. That's exactly the same thing as the core loop. You've got to make sure you're enhancing it. That's interesting. And you can enhance you can enhance the core loop not only in a sequel to a game, but even in levels. Like, you know, the first level of Angry Birds might not have exploding barrels, but then the second level has them and, and so on. Yeah, or like it's in a, it's a, cla- it's ghost- a classic Yeah, the, the the ghosts don't turn back around. The ghosts take a long time before they turn back to normal. And then on yeah. higher levels, they turn, it's just a few seconds and then they're back or even one second, you know, like the higher, higher levels. And that's, that's called ramping. That's where you basically make things simple and it gets progressively more difficult over a ramp. Yeah. I, I, I think that's what makes, I'm still fascinated by how like asteroids, which I always think of as one of the first, like it was probably the first arcade game I played after Pong. Asteroids is still a fun game. I, I recently was in a computer museum and I there was an Asteroids machine there and I played it for the first time in decades. And it's still like a great game. Yeah, that's why it's a classic. It was, it was perfectly designed for what it was and it was executed extremely well. It was smooth, fast, and it had a progression harder and harder to go up levels, you know, like when the little, the little spaceship at the top is starting to shoot at you and you know, hear the, the, the dun, 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 dun. Yeah. <laughs> Going faster and faster. Um, that there's more asteroids, which means more little pieces flying all over the place when you blow them up. And it had great progression. 
Yeah, Edlog did a great job there. It was Edlog that did that. Yeah, so like now, if you were 17, 18 years old right now and you loved games and you were a good programmer and you um, wanted to get in the gaming industry, what advice would you give someone like the 17-year-old you now? Um, I would say the game industry has so many jobs in it right now from writers to sound effects designers to programmers of 15 different types i mean or even more that you can do anything in the game in the game industry so find something you think that you're going to like and start learning about it because all the information you need is free and online right now and if it, and if it turns out that you don't like it that much switch to something that you think is even better and as soon as you can team up with somebody who's also trying to make a little indie game try and learn from each other and try to make something really small at the very beginning and just get your feet wet and just start doing something and you will get yourself in the game industry pretty quickly you know alongside this what's what's the role of a game engine for an indie designer like can you describe what a game engine is yeah a game engine basically is is a big complex piece of code that will do everything that you need to see 3D graphics on the screen, to see stuff on the screen quickly, even sometimes with just dragging and dropping 3D models that you can get online. You drag it and drop them into a scene and run it and see your scene and run around it immediately in uh, an engine, let's say, like Unreal Engine. And it takes care, what an engine does is it takes care of all the difficult programming necessary to even allow those 3D graphics <laughs> in the computer and to put them up on the screen and to make them look the way that you want them to look and to allow you to even program uh, a game, it just handles all of it. You're not doing it from scratch because if you're programming a game from scratch, you have nothing that you could put up on the screen. You have to figure out how to even turn the screen on to make a graphics mode turn on and then figure out how do you even do 3D stuff, which is you know, it's months worth of work to figure out how to even put something up on the screen in 3D. That's, you know, but use an engine, it happens within seconds. Now, when you're developing a game, do you ever get like the equivalent of writer's block, like gamer's block? It depends on what it is, but usually not. I work with a lot of really great people on my team and everybody has an idea for anything. You say anything to somebody, they already have something they could spit out at you, which then makes you think of something else, which then you have a design conversation and evolve something really cool pretty quickly. Um, so, yeah, a lot of times I'm not stuck doing something on my own that I can't figure out. It's, it's, there's, there's, just, uh, there's too many examples of cool stuff out there that you can take ideas from to modify your idea and change it into something new. Like, like what, like what excites you most right now about the future of gaming? Is it, you know, we've talked a little about VR, AR, AI, what, what, where do you see games five to 10 years from now? I can't even, I can't even say they're going to be very different. Right. And the reason why is because every, some, some, some within some 10 year span, a massive surprise happens to everybody, right? <laughs> no one's prepared for it, but somebody's thinking about something amazing right now that they're going to release and it will change things. And you can never predict what that thing is. And that's like the rise of, of uh, Minecraft, the rise of Facebook gaming that no one would have seen. Um, the, the, the massive investment in VR to create the best VR headsets the world has ever seen. 
um, which spurs on lots of new innovation and design. Um, you know, AI, like where's that going? Who knows? The iPhone changed everything with handheld gaming. Uh, the internet changed all gaming, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah, you can't, you can't, within a 10, 10 year span, more than one, usually more than one massive surprise is going to happen that nobody had seen. I can't tell you what it's going to be like other than it'll be cooler than it is right now. Like, is there an example where you were working on a game and one of these massive surprises happened and you said to everybody, we got to use this new tech in the game and, and it completely re redid the game? No, never have done that. Uh, always like when you're working on a game, it's usually you you are fixed on a schedule for years to get something done. Mm. And you can't just go like, oh, forget it all. Something else came out because that's almost certain doom to some companies. <laughs> um but sometimes, you know, you, you're at the right time in the right place and you can be responsive like that, the way that Fortnite was responsive to the emergence of Player Unknown Battlegrounds, and they put the the Battle Royale design into Fortnite and basically did an amazing job. And and when you relax, do you play computer games? <laughs> uh yeah. Yep. All kinds of games. Like like what are your favorite computer games to play? Um, I like shooters, definitely. I like taking playing shooters. I actually like learning how to code too, like learning new languages and trying new things out. Um, that's something that's super fun. It's a totally different kind of fun than playing games, but it's almost like that much fun playing a game, uh, coding and learning new things. So it's kind of unlimited. Do you still, you're, you're about the same age as me. Do you still code? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yep. I've I've had a hard time maybe because I've taken breaks from it. I was a I was heavily into coding when I was younger and I went to undergrad grad school for it and I my first bunch of jobs were all coding jobs but now I can't code at all. It's like my brain is like <laughs> missing something. I think it's because I've always coded, you know, since I was 11. Um and I mean the first 10 years of over to over 10 years, 15 years was intense, nonstop coding and it's it's the stuff you'll never forget because it was so intense like i can program an apple II right now in assembly language without it without even needing to look stuff up because i lived in it you know for so long so many years um it's burned in it's not going away so yeah it's just <laughs> i'm just you just keep on top of it and it won't go away well john romero creator of really the first person shooter genre which has lasted forever i mean how many games are in that genre would you think oh thousands and thousands tons and <laughs> and doom or you know maybe wolfenstein 3d but doom was the first one i played which you created yeah you know and author of the book doom guy life in first person thank you so much for for sharing your experiences thank you for creating doom and forcing me to waste hundreds or thousands of hours of time in my life. I really enjoyed it and, and appreciated it. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's been really fun talking about this. Thank you. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? 
also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. 